The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. reading a part from the middle of chapter 17, verses 15 and following, and then as indicated in the bulletin, chapter 18 through 15. Listen to God's holy word. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, No, Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you will call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Then jump down to the beginning of chapter 18, a most mysterious occasion somewhat later on. The Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him, When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seahs of flour, knead it and make cakes. And then he ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. And he took curds and milk and the calf he had prepared and set it before them and stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years, and the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have this pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. 
This is God's holy word. Big news this past week, of course, has been the Diamond Jubilee of Queen Elizabeth of England, 60 years on the throne there, beyond even the remembrance of many people when she became queen. All of London has been turning out for major pageantry on the Thames River and in the streets, watching the royal family. My own sister was in London this past week, and I was musing about whether she might somehow see the queen or at least see the motorcade. Let me ask an imaginary question. What if you were an American tourist in London and all this was going on, and there you, you were, you uh, queued up at some, that's what you do in England, you know, you queue up, uh, and you come to the curb and you watch the queen going by, and uh, all of a sudden, to your great surprise, the motorcade stops. And uh, security guards uh, crowd around and open the door and escort her royal majesty out of the car to walk over to the curb to shake hands and have a little photo op with some of the people who are gathered. There she is. You can see her in spite of a hat the size of Texas, but uh, she comes to shake the hands of everyone. Well, suppose, now this is all imaginary, you're there, uh, you're a woman, you're an American tourist, and the queen extends her hand to you and says, Why, hello, Mrs. Smith. How nice of you to be here from Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, in the USA. And I see your husband, Frank, is not with you. He must be back at home in Strasburg, where you live, perhaps doing his job at Donnelly Printing. Well, you would be absolutely open-mouthed, assuming those are accurate facts for you. How did the queen know me? How could the queen ever have addressed me, important as she is, and I, uh, an anonymous American tourist, how could she have that knowledge of my life and, and that intimate understanding of me? Well, I tell you that something not so different occurred, and we've just read of it in the book of Genesis. As three strangers approached the camp of a rich nomad named Abraham, a man who was so wealthy that he had a small village with him every place he went, servants, herdsmen, People preparing food, setting up camp, taking care of thousands of animals. Three strangers came in the heat of the day. And the leader of this mysterious trio revealed that he was a person of high standing. A person of absolutely extraordinary insight. Who knew more about the life of Abraham and his wife Sarah than they actually did themselves. Because in Genesis 18, the scripture is clear in telling us Abraham had a visit from God. Remarkably, it was an incarnate form of the Most High God who came in a rare way to speak to Abraham about an important subject. There are those who say, well, the right way to understand this would be perhaps this was a visitation of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, before his own incarnation on earth in Bethlehem. It's not possible to draw a firm conclusion about that, but it's at least a possibility. It's not far-fetched. The appearance of God here at first was incognito, but you see, it became understood. One time in this text, if you want the precise detail, look at the beginning of verse 3 of chapter 18, when Abraham says, O Lord, he was giving an honorific title like you would speak, Sir, L-O-R-D, But check it out. Every other time the word Lord appears in this text, for example, 18.1, 
It is the small capitals that is the title of God. God appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre, and that's repeated several other times in the text. So this is something totally remarkable. And with him, we would understand, were two who later show themselves to be angels as they visit Sodom. Our text has a remarkable thread in it about human laughter that I want you to see today. As I was dealing with this, I was thinking about how contagious laughter is. You know how sometimes you can just be in the right mood and get silly and something really funny happens and you... You just have a side-splitting good laugh. It hasn't happened to me, I don't think, in a real long time. But I remember a couple of years ago, one time, for probably five straight minutes, I was trying to tell my wife what I was laughing about, which took a bit of a description. I couldn't even tell her because I couldn't stop laughing. I was just convulsed with laughter. I'll really show my age, and, and some of you who are young will say, who's he? A comedian who used to be able to do this to me on TV was Red Skelton. I don't know how many of you remember Red Skelton. He's died now. Red Skelton was just a clown of a comedian who I respected because his humor was always clean. In fact, he had a battle with the networks who eventually canceled his show because he opposed their standards of what humor should be. Bill Cosby's another one who does a pretty good job in that, in that reign. It's sad today that what we call humor is that which has to lampoon somebody, attack somebody, or use sexual innuendo or double entendres or something to to get a laugh. Well, Scripture shows us some laughter that has a bit of a dark side because it expresses scorn or something approaching a sneer or an arm folded, ha, I can't believe that. The question before us is whether we trust in the promises of God when it affects our immediate circumstances. When God has said something and circumstances seem to contradict it. And one of the ways of measuring it, according to this passage, is can we laugh with God and show delight in what he is doing? Or are we really maybe laughing at him and thereby calling him a liar? First of all, I want you to observe from this text in both Genesis 17 and 18, Abraham's laughter of delight in God. This may not be entirely clear to you at first, but especially in verses 15 to 17 of chapter 17, God is communicating in great detail to Abraham some way, and it's not told how. This is not a a a visitation of God as a person in chapter 17. We don't know how it was when it says, and God said, and God said. But somehow the Spirit of God was clearly impressing things on the mind of Abraham so as to communicate to him that his wife, Sarah, in her 90th year would have a child and he, in his 99th year, would be a father. And in 1717, when Abraham responded to that, look what he did. He fell on his face and laughed. And said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? We actually have someone in our sanctuary, I'm not going to embarrass him, who's past a 100th birthday. I don't think he's expecting to be a father soon. I'm sure we probably have some ladies here who might be 90. I'm not going to point them out. I especially wouldn't do that. 
I don't think any of them are expecting to be mothers soon. But here is Abraham, for whom a, a broad smile of some type comes to his face. And the important thing to see is that God did not criticize or in any way hold Abraham accountable for that laughter as if it was wrong. And in fact, we would seem to assume that God saw that as a joyful, good reaction that was even a reaction of faith. In fact, everything in the New Testament says about Abraham, it talks about him believing God when these promises came. Romans 4 is a classic reference point. Romans 4.17, Abraham believed in the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he would be the father of nations and did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body as good as dead. In other words, what was going on in Abraham's mind? Faith. God promised it and Abraham believed it. And if you don't didn't get that already, Romans 4.21 continues saying, he gave glory to God. I like to think his laughter was part of that glory. He gave glory to God because he was fully convinced God was able to do what he promised. Now we move to this somewhat later visitation of the Lord, L-O-R-D, capitals, in the person of a man leading to other travelers and coming to the camp of Abraham. Just a little note there to realize that this would have been a common thing in that day. You traveled on foot. Climate was blistering hot. Mid-afternoon was not the time you wanted to be out walking. You could die. It was so hot. And so it was very common to travel in the earlier cool hours, then stop somewhere get in some shade, perhaps get some hospitality or at least some water, and stop traveling until the cooler hours of the late afternoon. And hospitality towards even strangers was common. It was an obligation because you might be the person who needed it the next time around. So Abraham jumps up, and it's pretty clear from the text he doesn't know these people. He speaks respectfully in verse 3, O Lord, or Sir, and doesn't know for sure who this is, and yet he shows them a lavish form of hospitality. He doesn't snap his fingers and say, do this, do that. He ran to the tent. He went and got the calf. He made sure, as the the master of a small village of people, that this hospitality was great and well done. The theologians call what we have here is a theophany, theophany, a sighting of God a God sighting, because it was the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D who appeared at the Oaks of Mamre. The one who knew innermost thoughts. The one who spoke and prophesied things that would happen that nobody could imagine. Now, the first promise of uh, Isaac's birth had already been given, as you saw in chapter 17, some months or a period of time earlier, but now the purpose of the visit seems to be to say, now it's all going to become very specific. At this time next year, there'll be a baby crying in this tent. You moms, if you remember back when you were 18, you maybe thought about, one day I'll get married and perhaps I'll be a mother. And then you got married and you were married for a couple of years and you thought, perhaps we'll have a child someday. And then came the day when you returned from the doctor visit and told your husband, we're having a child, November 10th. 
That was very different. All of a sudden, it was a very specific thing to anticipate. It wasn't a maybe. It wasn't a vague possibility. It was going to happen. And God gave Abraham and Sarah something very definite and very specific to believe in and said, is this too hard? Do you think this is too hard for me to do? Even given the physiological obstacles to it? Well, maybe you think that's just totally a set of circumstances that have no bearing on us. Yet I would tell you that God gives us rather specific and distinct things to believe as Christians. He tells us that the transaction of the cross through Jesus Christ is, is a transaction with death and sin that literally has saving effects and is unlimited and powerful in that what it can cover and atone for and that our lives will be forgiven and changed He tells us that there's a real Holy Spirit who indwells those who are Christian believers, who gradually changes them and brings them into a new relation to God. He tells us that there's a firm guarantee of eternal life and that that is a hard and fast thing, not a vague, wispy maybe. And he says, are any of these things too hard for me to do? And he asks us to believe his gospel, which is a very definite, specific, historic gospel. To believe that Christ came, that his death and his real resurrection and his ascension and all these things truly happen and truly have effects. We are even to take delight in these things. And that's what we think Abraham was doing here. Taking delight in God, in, in a laughter, in a, you can see the smile all the way across his face. In trusting that God would do this amazing thing. But secondly, we contrast Abraham's laughter of delight with Sarah's laughter of disbelief. I'm not going to make Sarah the villain here, but but she does have a more negative quality to her character, at least in this incident, which changes later. Her laughter was a kind that signified disbelief in verses 9 to 15 of chapter 18. At age 90, my 89-year-old mother-in-law has just spent two weeks with us. And I've learned I you know, have to be careful. I have to help her in and out of the car. I have to give her my arm in and out of the house. She's not a spring chicken anymore. She was 42 when I first saw her, and she was a very different lady. 89. She's an older lady and a weaker lady. And here was Sarah that age, and she additionally was a melancholy, sad, really almost bitter woman. And we know about this because you can go back and trace the history of this marriage and, and the childbearing part of it in which Sarah herself decided, I can't seem to have a child. My Lord and Master Abraham needs a child. Bring in the slave girl, Hagar, and tell my husband to have a child with her. That happens. And then what happens? Sarah unloads on Hagar and attacks Hagar for having a child that she doesn't have. This woman is bitter. This woman is not happy with her life, and she certainly doesn't see that at age 89 there's too much prospect physically or spiritually of her life significantly changing. So that's the Sarah who's in the tent just out of sight, maybe cleaning up from the meal preparations, who hears the conversation a little ways away, how far, it doesn't really matter, 30, 50 feet. And she hears this leader of the stranger say, next year, your wife Sarah is going to have a child. Now remember, she's out of sight, 
she can hear. And of course, if she wanted to make herself heard, she probably could have. But as you read the text, it, it doesn't seem that she responded to that and called out, what a joke. No, it says she laughed within herself. And whatever she said apparently was said very quietly, maybe a whisper, maybe not even spoken. After I am old, you mean I am going to experience something like that? Ha! Isn't going to happen. No loud mockery, no attack on God, just disbelief. And then this visitor reveals himself as a discerner of of thoughts and says, why did Sarah laugh? This time she did speak. I didn't laugh (laughs) loud enough to be heard. And the visitor says, oh yes, you did. You see, Sarah's spiritual posture is distinct from Abraham's here. There's a cynicism. There's a disbelief. There's a defensiveness. You know, when you believe things, you make yourself vulnerable. And Sarah didn't want to be vulnerable. She wanted to be in her shell. And so she wasn't going to give in to that kind of belief. Let her husband believe that if he wanted to, but she wasn't going to. But in the scripture, unbelief is something that has to be recognized, confessed, and repented of. And Sarah needed to see that this was unbelief. And she needed to repent of it. She needed to see that she was trusting physical, bodily obstacles to the promise of God more than the word of God that said, it could happen. She was crediting the worldly evidence and disbelieving the supernatural evidence. 1 John 5 speaks to that. 1 John 5, 9 and 10. It says, if we receive the testimony of men, know this, the testimony of God is greater still. In other words, if you believe things in the natural world because people tell you it's so, or scientific evidence says this and this equals this, then why don't you believe the far greater evidence of the creator of the world when he says, this will be so? Sarah wasn't quite ready to do that. She was ready to let all kinds of negative physical obstacles stand in the way of trusting God. And her cynicism really equaled unbelief. But it was amazing that this unnamed visitor outside the tent that the text, again, keeps calling the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, could see inside her soul. Just as the psalmist said, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my thoughts from afar. 1 John 3.20 says, God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. And so the key issue was, Sarah, will you face this issue in the key verse 14 here? Is anything too hard for the Lord? You see, I think we we sometimes abuse that verse and don't interpret it rightly. We think, all right, I'm supposed to go through the world and life as an ultimate possibility thinker and Anything, anything, anything that's in my path, I I should believe that God can make it go away. Is anything too hard for the Lord? So, for example, let's just pick something out of the air. Let's say I'm a person who has very foolishly gone into debt with multiple credit cards and loans, and and I'm over 150,000 in unsecured debt, and I'm drowning. 
and I pray as a Christian and say, oh, Lord, I've been very foolish. Here I am in debt. I'm about to declare bankruptcy. I don't know how I can get out of this. But I, but I see the Bible saying, is anything too hard for the Lord? Lord, you can remove this without consequences and set me free. So, Lord, I claim that you would do that. I don't think you're rightly praying with Genesis 18, 14 in, in view because the point of this verse is you, you, have to edit, you have to add a footnote. Is anything that the Lord has promised that he would do too hard for the Lord to do? You see, the Lord hasn't promised that he would get fools out of debt way over their heads that they have acquired by their own folly and make it go away. Be careful how you apply Scripture. But if God has promised he would do something, are you going to say, no, he said he would do it, but he can't? Is anything the Lord has promised to do too hard for the Lord to do? That's what Sarah was being asked to see and what we're being asked to see and not to laugh at the promises of God, even if they stand aligned directly against circumstances and obstacles that we see in this world even great obstacles. Well, then we come, after Sarah's disbelieving laughter, to this final statement, and I would state the last point this way. God gets the last laugh. God gets the last laugh, and he also lets us share in it many times. Look at something I didn't read for you. If you just flip ahead in your Bible a couple pages to Genesis 21, The beginning of Genesis 21 tells of the birth of this child a year later. And you notice there, the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, God, visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised, and Sarah conceived and bore the son in her old age. And then she named him Isaac as God had previously revealed to Abraham. And look at verse 6. Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. Was she saying the whole world's going to laugh at me? I'm going to be a laughing stock? I don't believe that's the thrust of the verse at all. I think she's saying the whole world is going to rejoice with me, is going to see what God has done, and they're going to break out into smiles of, isn't the God of Abraham a wonderful, amazing God? Did you know, by the way, that the name Isaac means what? Laughter. God doesn't mess up the details, does he? Isaac's name meant laughter. The whole camp, that whole village of servants that followed Abraham around and and tended his animals and cooked his meals and so on, cut his firewood, all those people, did you hear? Have you seen him? What an amazing thing. A baby named Laughter. The joy of God, the delight of God has come into our midst. What does all this mean to us? More than once it has impressed me in the past that we Presbyterians do justify, at least perhaps some of the time, too often anyway, the reputation we have of being joyless, prim and proper people. I had a friend one time who said, uh, I I sometimes get the impression that if a stick of dynamite went off under the chair of a Presbyterian, he'd say, did you hear that? Well, we do earn that sometimes, folks. But 
we the Presbyterians are the ones who give to the world or at least hold up before the world. We didn't write it alone, but we are the ones who mainly declare it and believe it today, something called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And you shared in reading from it this morning. What is the chief end of man? Why does man exist on this earth? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to do it for me. Enjoy him forever. I think God likes laughter. I think God likes joy. I think God wants his people to be delighted in their knowledge of him at who he is and how he works and how he keeps his promises so that, that what Peter wrote in, in 1 Peter would be fulfilled in our lives that we would have joy unspeakable and full of glory. That's for everybody who knows Jesus Christ, who knows our God is a God of delight. But yet among us, Presbyterians or otherwise, are many people who are a bit like Sarah. They dwell in the camp of God's people, but they've got hard things in their life, or they've had hard things in their life, disappointments, obstacles. They've been put down. They've struggled. They've suffered. And so they sit among us and they hear things that make us just feel delighted. And they sit there and kind of go, hmm, I'll believe it when I see it. You know, they're laughing at God. They're laughing silently with a degree of scorn, maybe at worst with a kind of sneer, but they don't actually believe that God keeps his promises if those promises fly in the face of hard things and obstacles on this earth, that he really will forgive disastrous sin, or that he really will give you a new nature and work by his Holy Spirit and gradually change you into a new being before him, or that he really will guarantee that you will stand before his throne one day in great joy. Yeah, I know he promised all that, but it just doesn't seem to be working out for me. You probably haven't heard too much cynical laughter in our congregation this morning. Possibly God's heard it, though, because he looks on the heart. He knows what we're all thinking, not just what we're saying. And so in relation to the promises of God, I'm asking you, is anything too hard for the Lord? Do you really believe he can do the things he's promised he would do? Or is he some kind of a being that just makes wild claims that can't possibly be fulfilled? Genesis 18, 14 asserts that everything God has specifically promised he would do, he will do. The pledge of his doing it is sealed in the blood of his son. He sealed that promise in the highest possible way a claim can be made. Is anything too hard for the God who sent his son to Calvary? For the God who raised his son up? For the God who installed his son as his right hand as regent of the universe? And I want you to see that Jesus Christ died and rose, ladies and gentlemen, that as he himself said while on earth, in order that his joy might be in us and that our joy might be full. Almost every kind of joy the world has when it throws a party is false. 
The joy that comes out of a bottle of alcohol or out of a bottle of pills is not joy. In fact, it's destructive sorrow most of the time. But in Jesus Christ is joy that might be real and might be full. Heaven, as I understand it, is a place of smiles, a place of laughter, a place of repose where God's people, as we are able to look upon what was behind us in our life, say, God did everything well. What a God he is. And so he has a right to expect some holy laughter from our spirits and to share with us, as he does, and as he did with Sarah, the last laugh. God will always have the last laugh. Our Father, we are people who are too joyless in spite of the great things you've done and put before us in Jesus, in spite of conquering the world and the flesh and the devil and the power that exists in Christ, here we are living amidst those things and acting as if they are in control and we cannot even smile because life is so hard. I pray, O God, that someone today would discover again what it is to be delighted in you in the joy of knowing you, the prospect of knowing you eternally, of all sin forgiven, lift us up. There are heavy spirits here. Lift them up like you did with Sarah, that she might laugh along with you in the joy that is your own. In Jesus' name, amen.